Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to let you know about our annual Profound Preaching Conference for priests and deacons. If you want to brush up on your homiletics, please join us on November 15th on our campus with Father David Mowry, who will be talking about the Word becoming flesh, preaching as a sacrament. If you want to find out more about that conference, go to liturgicalinstitute.org and click on Conferences. This week, we are talking about the Amazon Synod, It's just kind of a 30,000-foot view. What is a synod? What are they going to be talking about? Obviously, all of this from a liturgical standpoint. So without further ado, Episode 8 of Season 4 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Do you hear do you hear that beautiful background? This is what Atchison, Kansas sounds like in the middle of October. It sounds more like the Amazon. <laughs> I'm just fishing here along the Missouri River. Yeah, well, Missouri loves company. That's so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they do because the road that actually leads to Missouri is so low on the low side of the river it floods every time, so we can't oh, get yeah. to Missouri right now. Yeah. So, oh, like go. literally right now it's flooded? Yeah, the Missouri River's been flooding for a long time because of all the rain in the spring and then they had this blizzard up in South Dakota. Do you know the Missouri River goes all the way up almost to the Canadian border? It's amazing. I so did when, not know that. When they get snow up there in North Dakota and then it melts, it all comes down this way. So hmm. Missouri River, it, I, it's actually longer, I think, than the Mississippi, but it doesn't get the cred that the Mississippi gets. Well, yeah, because Mississippi is awesome. Mm-hmm. M-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. Okay, so what are we talking about today? The Amazon Synod. Yeah, That's a different kind of thing. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Right Lutherans. from the off the news desk. Ding, 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 ding. Things happening right now today in the Amazon Synod of Bishops. Let's talk about that stuff, Chris. Let's okay. go live to Chris Carson's at the Amazon Synod. Chris, what are things like there? <laughs> I uh, I had tr- uh, true confessions. I'm actually closer to the Mississippi than the uh, Amazon. Like in terms of your personal relationship, uh, that and uh, <laughs> the the culture of the uh, Mississippi and the proximity to the Mississippi. Oh, all right. So, yeah, I'm about thirty miles from the Mississippi. But yeah, right. the, the the Synod of the Amazon or Amazonian Synod has been a, a lot in the news uh, lately for a variety of reasons. Uh, but one of which uh, has to do with uh, potential liturgical enculturation. Right, which is not a new thing, but they're just talking about it in a new way, I guess. I guess the first thing to say is, what's a synod of bishops? I think that was something... What's in- an Amazon? Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, something invented under uh, John Paul II, if I, if I remember right. Um, it's an advisory body for the Pope. So the bishops get together from different regions, and they kind of say, okay, these are our issues, this is what we need, and then they give these recommendations to the Pope. Um, I'm looking at an actual quote here from Canon Law, and it says, uh, observance and strengthening of ecclesiastical discipline and to consider questions pertaining to the activity of the church in the world. Close quote. We just had a youth synod, right? Well, see, I think there's different kinds of synods. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, I think a synod of bishops is strictly speaking, as its name suggests, I mean, just bishops. I don't, I honestly don't know if this is a just a synod of bishops, 
to the exclusion of others? I don't think it is. I think um, it's a synod in a broader sense that includes not just bishops, but other, I don't know, pastors and laity and religious. Uh, but they do the same types of things. So they would, um, what they're trying to do is uh, bring together the needs of the local I don't know, body or culture or group, whatever it is, uh, to the to the highest levels of pastoral care of the church to see how how the faith might be best celebrated and expressed in, given this local circumstance. But this is just for that area in the Amazon, not for the global church. Is that correct? Yeah, that's okay. correct. And so there's different, there have been different, many different synods of bishops all over the place, you know, and they, the whole Maurice Letizia thing came out of a synod of bishops. So the bishops get together and they make recommendations and then the Pope's job is to decide what to do with those recommendations. Because the Pope, you know, he's in the Vatican most of the time. What does he know about this pastoral situation on the ground in some region, you know, far away? So their, their job is to say, hey, Pope, we need help in this particular situation. And, you know, as I said, the specific definition is um, they give the Pope counsel in preservation and growth and faith and morals, observance and strengthening of ecclesiastical discipline, and then these questions of the church's activity in the world. So that's what it's about. So it's not about, hey, how can we go out there and change ecclesiastical discipline? Or how can we change faith and morals? Or uh, how can we change all this stuff? That's really not what it's about. It's about giving the Pope advice from the ground so that people can tell him, what they need, and then his job is usually to write what's called a post-synodal exhortation. Is that right, Chris? Yes. So he says, okay, bishops of region one, two, three, I heard what you said, and this is what I've decided. And that's um, that's how that's how it works. Is it kind of like, maybe this is a very bad example, but is it kind of like how lower courts in the United States can inform things that happen with the Supreme Court? How Not really, because they don't have binding authority, the bishops' synods. They just kind of aggregate all their concerns and then they send them to the Pope. But they so, have, they have like, bishops' authority to well, do something. Diocese, sure, but right. as, as a synod of bishops, they're in a, primarily an advisory body. Okay, okay. So I was totally wrong, like I assumed. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's important, right? If the Pope is saying, hey... You're bishops, right? We, I, I don't know what your situation is like on the ground, and you're telling me you need help in X, Y, Z, one, two, three. That's an important thing, but it's not binding on the Pope. So it's the Pope's job to then say, okay, I've heard what you said, and this is what I say back. Because the bishops might say something that he thinks is not advisable, and then he won't give that permission. So is that why this that seems to have like a more global impact? Because this one specific case in one specific location might inform how the Pope decides something globally? Is that what I'm understanding, or? Yeah, you know, this one's getting a lot of press in the Amazon. That's what, that, yeah, that's what reason. I, yeah. Be, not because it's it's so rare that there's a synod of bishops, right? These happen all the time. I think because some of the topics they're discussing are sort of hot button issues, that's why everybody's paying attention. That's why everybody's getting nervous. Can we, let me back up a little bit. Um, all right, there's, there's a lot of things that have been written about this, but again, I'm in Wisconsin, and Dennis is in Kansas, and Jesse here in a, an undisclosed location. An undisclosed. Okay, so what what is the situation on the ground, principally, that they're trying to meet and address and help to help to serve? Well, there are a couple of things that are uh, on people's minds, right? So, in general, whenever a region has people who are not Christian for whatever reason. They're trying to figure out how can we reach out to those. So the questions of enculturation are important. 
So, um, you know, like when there's a synod of bishops in Africa, they'll say there's still a lot of pre-Christian, um, you know, voodoo and different kinds of false worship and witch doctors that that's a real pastoral situation that we have and we have to reach out to them in ways that they understand and that's how enculturation comes around i think one of the issues for the pan amazon issue is that the indigenous peoples so you know not the people who are speaking spanish and have been christian for a long time but people who are living in the sorry go ahead are they portuguese they speak portuguese spanish both yeah it depends yeah portuguese and brazil yeah that there are people who are kind of living in the jungle, so to speak, or in mountains, very remote locations. And one of the problems is they don't have enough priests to reach all these people. Another one is that those people are often very dependent on the land and the um, unspoiled uh, sort of, I don't know what, the, uh, the natural jungles and the natural forests and everything. Those things are becoming endangered and so the people who are there are losing their way of life and what's happening is they're often coming into the cities and they're they're coming into the more established areas and their culture is very different their language is often different their culture is very different and so how do they a preserve the land for these people because that's their authentic culture and that's why ecology comes into these questions and then the other one is how do we address these people in the cultural ways that that they understand so migration is part of this right if you're if you're moving from uh, an agricultural uh, reality in the jungle or in, in, the, in the forest, so to speak, into a city. That's a real situation. What happens? And it's urbanization and families break up. There's a lot of things going on there that are important. Okay, so this is the context then where, you know, if you, if you read much about this, the, the issues that are garnering the most uh, attention are about married priests and uh, the possibility of a, a female diaconate, right? So that right. these people could possibly be served in those ways, given their circumstances. Right. And so a synod, you know, we tend to think, oh, a bishop spoke at a synod. Oh, no, they're going to change everything. Well, you know, it is permitted. The church is permitted to allow married priests. So the question is, do we do that or not? Now, some of the bishops in the area, and there's lots of bishops in the Pan Amazon region, think that might be a possibility, right? Now, the question isn't, we've decided this and it's going to happen, that they might say this is a possibility of how we reach all these people in the mountains or in remote locations. And then they, they send out the Pope. And then the Pope, at, at the end, does his post-synodal exhortation and does the final um, decision on that. So I think everybody's a little bit on a hair trigger. It's like, if this is brought up in discussion... It's the nose of the camel under the tent. And before you know it, the camel's going to be under the tent. I don't know tent. what that phrase is. Camel's nose under the tent? What is that you about? you never heard there, that, Jesse? There's no, no camels in the Amazon. Well, we're not talking about the Amazon, <laughs> the Amazon. right now. Yeah, imagine you're a migrant in the desert of some Middle Eastern place, wherever they have camels, and you set up your tent and the camel gets loose and like sticks its nose under the tent. That means the rest of the camel is going to be there pretty soon. It's sort of like when a bear smells your food in your cabin when you're camping. If the bear's nose is in the window, you're pretty sure the rest of the bear is going to be in there pretty or soon. Or it's kind of like letting a cat outside of a bag. Yeah, well, right. It's hard to get the cat back in the bag. But this is a different one. When This is the camel getting in the tent. In other words, if you let one little thing happen in the Amazon, then that means it's going to happen everywhere. So this discussion of married priests in the Amazon means, oh, does that is that the end of celibacy and the whole Latin church? And oh, some people are, okay. are kind of worried about that, you know, and have been worried about that for a long time. So what happens is you have a pastoral situation that needs addressing. Somebody proposes a solution. Maybe it's an agenda-driven solution. Maybe it's a real solution. Whatever it is, it's all going to go to the Pope, right? So the job of the bishops is 
brainstorming pastoral needs, pastoral situations in our region. And somebody proposed if we had some older married men who were priests, ordained priests, then they could go into these remote places and bring the the sacraments to these people who are not being met now. In other words, how do we continue this job of evangelization in our region? And one of them is to have remote places. You know, but these questions about priests and deacons, um, they certainly obviously touch upon the liturgy, but there are also like in some of the reports you read uh, discussions about like an Amazonian rite or more specifically uh, liturgical uh, elements that are enculturated, although it's hard to tell just what some of these might be. Do you remember hearing about any of these, Dennis? Yeah, I don't know the specifics so well about what they're actually proposing. I'm, I'm looking now at one of the documents for the that was prepared for the Synod as the working document. And so they're talking about enculturation a bit. And, you know, Veritatis Legitime was the document on enculturation that it's 25 years old this year. And those are the, those are the norms for enculturating. I think sometimes this document doesn't follow those exactly. So anyone who's talking about an Amazonian right it hasn't wait, wait, really... Wait, which document? The Synodal document? Or? Yeah, the newer Synodal yeah, okay. documents. Or the things that are being said anyway. Way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to know what is the press actually doing mm-hmm. accurately. Or they just, you know, if you have a hundred and something bishops and one of them says something crazy, is that really the norm, <laughs> right? Or is well, that just what the news is reporting? Yeah. You know, one at least earlier in the, I don't know, I guess the summer, what they have these uh, preparatory documents about what mm-hmm. they're going to discuss or might discuss. Do you remember there was this talk about substituting wheat bread for some sort of a bread type thing made out of yucca? Right, so it's a starchy thing that is produced. You know, the funny thing is these questions are are really old and they were settled 25 years ago, but now they're popping their heads up again. (laughs) It's kind of like a lot of things right now. Um, The the church has settled that question, so why they and then it was settled again. You know, it's not going to happen. But see, this is the thing: a local bishop raises a question, the news sends it around the world, then someone in Rome says, "Mm, "No, we're not going to do that." Um, And the logic is that. Wheat and grapes are biblical. They're given in Scripture. They're not changeable. They're an unchangeable part of Christian worship. And that seems to be one of the, if not the key to these enculturation questions, whether they're uh, liturgical or extra liturgical. I mean, there are some things that are essentially given by by the Lord and others that are uh, can and should be changed is how the words in the Constitution put it, um, given a local culture. Well, this this matter uh, of the Eucharist is one of those things that can't be changed. As you said, Dennis, it's, it's, it's been a settled question for a very long time. So why is it, why is it coming up again? But it's in those yeah. other elements, the things that can and might be changed. And so I was reading a, uh, in one story, like the sprinkling rite uh, is maybe one of those things that don't constitute the essential elements of the, the Roman rite liturgy that might be tailored or enculturated to suit the needs of uh, those in the, in the Amazon culture. Right. I think one of the problems with this working document that they're using is the suggestion, it's paragraph 126 on enculturation and, and forward. It doesn't quote Veritatis Legitimae once. Really? It quotes <laughs> Evangelii Gaudium, you know, Pope Francis' document, which probably quotes Vatican II and other documents. But um, it says these funny phrases like, oh, sound decentralization of the church. You know, the community's request, the Episcopal 
conferences adapt the Eucharistic ritual to their cultures. Okay. Anything wrong with that? Not really. But what they're not doing is sticking with the letter of the law and this actual instruction on the liturgy that we've talked about. Why does before. this stuff happen? Like, what, if, we've, if we've settled everything, why do we have to keep having these conversations? I don't know. It's like Gnosticism, you know. It's a heresy from the early days of the church, and, you know, it just pops up in different forms. <laughs> Someone told me that a religious vocation once is like a beach ball, and you're in the pool sitting on the beach ball, and it keeps, like, popping up no matter what you do you can't sit on it long enough i think some of these ideas just pop up again your metaphors are on point today <laughs> well thank you but you know if you're talking about pope francis's new move toward decentralization where veritatis legitimate would probably be considered a move towards centralization and so i don't know people are just trying to see what happens if they <laughs> ignore the normative documents i guess um but that doesn't mean that enculturation is not a a legitimate thing you know the question is how is it done well and how is it done properly but it is confusing and frustrating to think why are we constantly going back to uh, to find the principles and reestablish them when you know what when, when this has been done in an authoritative I way i think that's a valid and legitimate critique these, these working documents at least the translation i'm working with here um, which is from the Vatican, it's very broad and kind of vague, and the citations are not to you know the most normative documents, but to the secondary documents or tertiary documents, and even those are not really quoted uh, word for word. So that's part of the problem. People who are traditionally minded get nervous when they look at documents like this because they've seen documents like this before. And again, hang on, by documents, you mean the synod document, not Veritatis Legitimate. Right, the working yeah. document of yeah. the synod, because it lets people kind of propose pretty much anything. Um, but, you know, a working document of a synod is going to do that. You're going to throw lots of things at the wall and see what sticks. So I think for people in the pews, don't panic, right? Just wait and see what happens. If thousand, I mean, if every bishop in America made a suggestion about liturgy, you can imagine how different they would all be, right? And then whoever was in charge would have to say, okay, that one goes out the window. We keep this one. This is important. That one's not. That's a crazy person. This is not. Nope not to call bishops crazy, but every now and then sometimes things are said that are not going to stay. And so enculturation, properly speaking, is always going to preserve the, the message of the faith and the important unchangeable parts of the faith. But that doesn't mean that other parts that are changeable can't be changed. Yeah. You know, the, the, at the time of this recording, the last thing uh, that I read about uh, this synod uh, came from a, uh, one of the bishops uh, who said that uh, about this liturgical enculturation, it does not mean something different from what the church already has. He suggested possible introduction of some symbols or rituals in ornaments and music uh, that don't impact the essential elements of the Eucharist. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, this at least, the last thing I've read is is all entirely consistent with Veritatis Legitime, which is this interpretation of the council. Right, and it's been like that from the beginning, right? The early yeah. church had to decide these questions. When Jews convert, when non-Jews convert to Christianity, you know, what do they have to do, right? This was, circumcision was a question at the beginning. What language are they going to use when they go to Greek, uh, to Greece? How do you talk to the Greeks? Language is a perfect example, right? If, if you're going to translate the scripture into, the, say, a, an Amazonian language, well, that's already a translation, that's already a change. But you can't, do that without preserving at least the best you can the content of what you're translating if you just go off and do something else then you're actually damaging the transmission of the faith so the same thing happens in liturgy um i've been using this example a lot lately of um there are these things i saw in hawaii they're the 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 kings in the many of the Polynesian cultures would wear these vests of feathers. It was, it was sort of like these rare yellow feathers, and that was a signal of their 
being kings. And um, they would also carry a staff, a sort of pole with this sort of pom-pom of feathers on the top. Oh, I think so, I remember you telling me about this. Yeah, if you go to Hawaii, you'll see these two poles with these pom-pom feathers on either side of the tabernacle because that's the Hawaiian way of saying the king is here. Now, nobody feels like that's violated the truth of the faith. It's just using a local convention that Hawaiians would understand to know and then preserving the content of the faith. However, if you put some statue of some other god and say, now these, you know, the, the new king is challenging the old king because the old, you know, religions and new religions are fighting with each other, like, that's not good, right, obviously. And so the challenge is, how do you make it, what they say in these documents, have an Amazonian face? In other words, people who are suspicious of the church, right, they've been treated badly over the centuries by people who want to exploit their the minerals under the land that they have or to burn down the forest to have, you know, agricultural, uh, big business farming. And so they run in further and further into isolation in the mountains or the forest or the jungle. And now, because of various reasons, they're being forced out of their traditional uh, life. And they're coming into the cities and moving into the cities. And they don't speak Spanish necessarily, or they have different symbol systems. How do you convince them that the faith is for them as well? And it's not just associated with um, imperial cultures or big businessmen or whatever. And so that's the logic of enculturation. It always makes the faith knowable and understandable to people who haven't heard it before. You can imagine if someone walked up to you and started speaking an Amazonian language from the mountains and was trying, and was trying to convince you of their belief system, you'd be like, first of all, I don't know what you're saying because I don't speak your language. Second of all, I don't know what those feathers on your head mean or what that paint on your face means. You have to know what those uh, those signs mean in order to begin to understand how these things are uh, absorbed into your own culture. So just like we look at some Amazonian culture with feathers and, and dance and we say, well, that doesn't seem to be Christian. They look at Western stuff and say, that doesn't seem to be Amazonian. And so how do you meet in the middle without doing harm to the faith, but have this actual uh, enculturation of the external signs to understand their worldview and what they're afraid of and what they're geographic and social circumstances are. That's why you have a, a synod. Very well said, Dennis. Oh, there oh, we go. You. Well, I think that about uh, explains all my questions. <laughs> <laughs> it, do it doesn't. I have a ton of questions. <laughs> no, but it's all, that's also very important. And like, as you were talking, Dennis, I was kind of thinking like, man, like culture's also always changing and adapting. And, you know, like... I was thinking, what would somebody think a king is or things that have importance today? And our concept of a king has changed, you know, like we because we don't have that anymore, at least in America. So we treat things differently than we used to in, in medieval times. And so, I'm, you know, my mind's kind of racing of like how enculturation ha happens as a culture itself starts to change and morph. So see, but, you know, we don't have a solemnity of Christ the president. Right, but because uh, so there, there's certain degree of uh, adaptation or acculturation to us in the West, but you still have to maintain that kernel, that core of the faith. Sure, it's a difficult no, I agree. question. All right. right, and you know, here I'll just tell you this in case anybody's worried. Paragraph 129 of this working document says, affirming that celibacy is a gift for the church. It is requested for the most remote areas of the region the possibility of priestly ordination be studied for older people, preferably indigenous, respected and accepted by their community. Partly because in some places, celibacy is not 
understood. And so they're not saying, oh, by the way, celibacy goes out the window. They're saying in some of these indigenous places, the older people in those places might be considered uh, suitable for um, ordination. So again, it's not necessarily just the camel's nose under the tent, but people want to go uh, crazy uh, sometimes. So it, you know, when you don't trust the people in charge, you you tend to get paranoid. So I would just say for everybody, don't be paranoid yet, even if you think there's good reason <laughs> for paranoia. Mm-hmm. A synod throws a lot of ideas out there, and then they're filtered out. So we'll see what happens uh, when all of this uh, goes on. But I think Cardinal Burke had it right when he said the job of a synod isn't to create new theology or new ecclesiastical discipline uh, or, or new rules in faith and morals, but to preserve and help them grow and observe and strengthen. And I think if we keep that in mind, this should be okay. And if you want to read the working documents that Dennis is talking about, you can go to www.amazon.com. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's synodoamazonico.va. So yeah, same thing. Yeah. It forwards there. Odoamazonico.va. It's on the Vatican webpage. Easy yeah. to find in a regular search. Uh, so, should we answer a question? Yes. All right, let's do it. So, why go to the liturgical institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church. You won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right. This week, we have a question from Jordan. Jordan says, hey, guys. No comma hey, there. No comma Jordan. there. He was, There's no comma. He wasn't addressing us. He's just saying, hey, guys. Hey, guys. I have a question about the priest saying the Our Father, the Creed, and other prayers during the Mass. The priest at my church that I recently started going to will say the first lines of the Our Father or the Creed and then stop and stand there and stare at the crowd while finish while we, the crowd finishes the prayers. Is this normal or is this something I should maybe talk to him about? Love the show. Keep up the great work. Jordan. Okay. Well, you know what? I remember something from Mystical Body, Mystical Voice, Chris. Mystical you said, Body, uh, do you, Mystical, mystical Voice. Right, we, had a little, we had a little jingle for that. Mm-hmm. This is a book that you wrote a little bit together with Father Martis, and you went around and talking about the new Missal, but we talked about the multiple voices in liturgy. Do you remember that? Sometimes so. priests are speaking the words of Christ. Sometimes he's speaking his own words. Sometimes he's speaking on behalf of other people. And I think that's a relevant thing here, right? Because sometimes the priest says certain things, and sometimes he doesn't. But doesn't that, it say when the priest summer. says things and when he doesn't? It, well, yeah, I was I was handing that softball off to Chris to go <laughs> to go exactly there. I intercepted it. <laughs> yeah, no, Dennis, you're spot on. It's it's you know the priest speaks in multiple voices, as you say. Sometimes in these uh, like private prayers, he's speaking uh, on his own uh, person on behalf of his own self, individual self. Sometimes he's speaking on behalf of God to the people, and other times on behalf of people to God. And so uh, sometimes he's speaking in the person of Christ, the head to the rest of the body. Sometimes he's speaking with them, but yeah, he doesn't have to guess about which occasions um, 
he's he's standing in one place or another. This is why the instructions and the rubrics and the missile they tell him uh, what they are to do. So, for right. example, yeah. Well, go ahead. Yes. It'll say something like the people reply, or the priest and the people together reply. Like it's quite clear actually what who says what when. Yeah. So f- let's take for example the the creed. Uh, in the in the germ, it says the creed is to be sung or said by the priest together with the people on Sundays or solemnities. Which makes right? sense, right? Because he's a baptized member of the church, and that's what the creed is about: is this proclaiming your belief uh, all the way back to your baptism. Yeah, and in these, you know, in the this is sort of has to do with it, with music. You know, when it talks about singing the most important parts, those are di- uh, dialogues, things the priest says and the people respond to, or common acclamations when the two of them say it together because this it's this sacramentalization in uh, uh, through the voice about the mystical body, you know, working, uh, you know, whether it's bridegroom and bride or them together speaking to the Father. But I mean, this is what's lying beneath and behind the various rubrics and instructions. It's <laughs> meant that it's this it's this i don't know it's this choreographed or this symphony of voices coming together in the praise of god each in a right. different way and an, an obvious one for instance would be when the priest says to the people pray brethren that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable he should not answer with the people may the lord accept the sacrifice of your hands right because he's asking them for something they're praying for him but then there are other times where there people you know it's one mystical body making the same intention and so i guess mm-hmm. the way to determine that is get a good set of the uh, the general instruction or a missile that where actually all the rubrics are in and then see which ones are supposed to be there. The, the Jordan specifically mentioned the Our Father. Do you know what happens in that one, Chris? Do you have that? Uh, I'll see. give you a second to, to look that up. First, Jesse, what, first what you, you have to hold hands and then you have to... <laughs> no, that is not in the rubrics. <laughs> I would think but, the, the priest says it as because he says as we pray. Right, well, he invites everybody to say the Our Father... Uh, the priest pronounces the invitation, and then yep. all the faithful say the prayer with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the priest alone adds the embolism. That's the part uh, uh, after the Lord's Prayer, but before we say, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory. That's called the embolism, uh, which the people conclude by means of the dioxide. It, it, it's, it's this dialogue, and it's very. It's, you don't have to guess about it. It says exactly who says what, when, and how. And the priest doesn't say amen to himself a lot of the time. When people say amen, typically... the people reply, right. amen. Yeah. It's not much easier than that, is it? The priest and the people, the people, the priest alone. It's yeah. all right there in the book. Yeah. But again, the, think of the uh, what's... Um, it, it's great to follow the rubrics and the instructions because it's a good thing to do. But what's underlying it is kind of the, the, the mystical body of Christ coming on full display. It's the sacramental dialogue that can be either done well and clearly or bad and poorly and murkily. Not, not to not to do yeah. uh, defend not adhering to the rubrics here, but Good. I know I mean, that, that's, that's it. <laughs> I know that there's a practicality <laughs> too when you're when you're mic'd as a priest. Sometimes you know you have to go, you have to turn the mic on, and then you're speaking, and, and then all of a sudden everybody can hear. So I think there's a practicality to this too that sure. some priests will uh, pay attention to because otherwise their hands going to be flipping the mic, you know, mute, not mute, mute. You know what I mean? And it can, that can be just a practical issue. Well, uh, the the Lamb of God, it says the people begin the Lamb. It doesn't say the priest begins it. And so I remember we were doing this mystical body, mystical voice uh, tour. People said, well, how are the people? Are they just going to start it? And so sometimes, you know, yeah, the pe- as a matter of practicality, the priest needs to kind of get the get the acclamation going. So, yeah, the the Mass is, um, you know, it's its own end. But it, it, 
it tries to be practical and user-friendly at the same time. Sure. All right, Jordan, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at... DMAX Super Taster. Tastes more than you do. Or tweet Chris at... Still still don't have anything. All right, Mm, good. Keep it that way. Stay off the grid, man. All right, thank you and God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoramus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.